Welcome to another episode of Chic Compass Connection. This podcast will give you a glimpse into the window of the popular Chic Compass magazine, where we feature art, music, design, fashion, dining, and all things chic for the culture-starved audiences of the world. To view our magazine online, visit chiccompass.com. That's C-H-I-C-C-O-M-P-A-S-S dot com. We would also like to thank the Vegas Room in the Historic Commercial Center in Las Vegas, Nevada, for inviting us to their supper club to broadcast our show. I'm your host, Jamie Hosmer. Let's introduce today's guest. Jerry Lopez is a singer, guitarist, songwriter, producer, and band leader who has performed with some of the most recognizable names in music. Ricky Martin, Bill Champlin, Tom Scott, Mark Anthony, Donny Osmond, and Wayne Brady are just a few of the names on the list of who Jerry has worked with. He comes from a musical family from Santa Fe, New Mexico. In November of 2020, the Lopez family will be inducted into the New Mexico Music Hall of Fame. His 15-piece band, Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns, has been performing every Monday night in Las Vegas for 20 years and has released two studio and two live albums. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jamie. Good to be here. All right. So we've known each other for a long time. Yeah, it's funny. I was just somebody, or, or, you know, like on Facebook, these memories come up or whatever. Yeah. And there was a picture of you and I and Lenny and Roshan, and we look so young, man. (laughs) And I was thinking... It's been it's been almost twenty years since really it's been, we started working together. Right, the Storm Show, the Storm Show at what, Mandalay Bay. What, what year was that? Was which that was I think two thousand and one. Two thousand and one. Wow. It was two thousand and one. I think late two thousand yeah. or into two thousand and one. So it's been a while. Yeah, um, time flies. <laughs> woo! So I wanted to start by you grew up, of course, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Yeah. Right. Yep. During in the sixties, yes, I was born in nineteen fifty six, which makes me sixty four years old, and um, so I was born in the fifties, and was uh, and grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, up until I left as a teenager. Um, you know, like what, in, what was it like in the sixties? I know you started, you and your brothers, started singing like before you went to school. Yeah, right? we were little kids. What was yeah. that like? Well, it was a we were it was a really poor neighborhood. We we my my parents were of modest income. Uh, that's a nice way of saying we were as poor as shit. So, <laughs> uh, the way it happened is that um, my we had a little black and white television, and that we you know I'd watch Ed Sullivan and we you know so there was right. like three channels back in those days. And uh, the television broke down, and they could not afford to get another one or get it fixed. So my dad borrowed my uncle's guitar. My uncle lived in the casita in the back. They're old adobe houses that were built by my grandfather in the 40s or 30s. And um, so he borrowed my uncle's guitar, and he started, he knew like four guitar chords, and he'd play and he'd sing, and then my mom would join in. You know, this was prior to the interweb and looking at little screens and <laughs> and everything where that's taken our world, right? But there was actually people interfacing with each other doing stuff like that. Wow. And um, so they started singing together. And then uh, my brother Gilbert, who was about 
six years old at the time, he started joining in, and my father saw that he had a great ear and actually had, like, almost perfect pitch. He didn't know any of those terms in those days. He just knew that this kid could sing. Mm -hmm. And so he got my brother Gilbert singing, and shortly after that, I, I, I would sit and I would watch, and I remember that I was really young, but I remember because... We we the the house consisted of one bedroom, a bathroom, and the kitchen, and so my parents slept in a in a bed, and Gilbert and I slept in a rollaway bed that was on that was you know would be folded up, and and wow. I remember sitting on top of that rollaway bed and watching them. Isn't that funny? Wow! I can't remember stuff that happened two months ago, and I can remember that. That's amazing. Yeah. So I asked if I could, you know, Dad, I I want to sing, and he was like, he tried to shine me on. He said, you know, you don't know the songs. I said, I know all the songs. So you know, he uh, he gave me a shot, and uh, he realized that I did. And then he thought, I'm going to show these kids how to harmonize. And my dad didn't have any musical training. He he knew those four guitar chords, but he figured it out. Wow. And um, and so. Soon we were he, we started building a repertoire, and he was like, "If you kids really," and it's funny because he's having this serious, uh, you know, this serious uh, conversation with these little kids about their career. You know, <laughs> it was almost a Joe Jackson moment, right? But he's like, "If you guys really want to do this, you're going to practice. Are you guys are you in? You know, do you want to practice?" I don't remember the exact words, but that was the deal, and we were like, "Yeah, we really want to do it." So every day we would he. Back in those days, we didn't have cell phones or beepers or whatever. Right. He'd yell at us out at the front door because we'd be out in the street playing because that's where we played. And we'd have to come in and practice every day. Wow. Every single day. And there was times when we really didn't want to do it. And we'd be standing up there crying, singing. And he'd, and there was times when I hated him. <laughs> you know, there was times when I hated him. And, 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 and there were times when people like my maternal grandmother... She she think it was child abuse, you know. I mean, wow. But I could <clears throat> kiss his feet the rest of my life because of the work ethic that he taught me. And uh, but that's how it started. So yeah. So pretty soon we started. They had us singing in uh, talent local talent contests and anywhere that we could sing. And then my dad would take us to the bars on the weekends. Oh wow. Oh yeah. And and he'd play the guitar and we'd stand up and we'd sing and then they'd pass the hat and that's how we made money. Got it. So that that was uh, early. That's the beginning of your career. That's the beginning of my career, right there, buddy. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. <laughs> I was a I was a strolling troubadour at the age of six and seven years old. Well, there's pictures. There's pictures on your website. Oh, it's verified <laughs> of of you and your brother. Yeah. At very very young age, out at in the La Pla, in the playa at yeah. Santa Fe. That's right at the plaza downtown the plaza, Santa Fe. The plaza. Yep. Which. Pretty much looks the same to looks, this day. It looks the same. They, the The stage is in the same place. They've they've upgraded it. I was I was just there recently, and I always go back to the plaza, and uh, and but it's but it's the same. The nothing has changed there. Wow, really. So I also understand that your grandmother wrote the song that they use every year for the annual celebration of the yeah. Santa Fe founding. That's right. Is that that's, correct? That's correct. My grandmother was a songwriter, my maternal grandmother, my mom's mom, and uh, 
to this day they sing that song, and she, as well as she wrote a lot of the hymns that are sung in the in the Catholic churches there. Wow, in New Mexico. So the legacy of the Santa Fe uh, music goes back generations. Oh yeah, generations. My grandfather, on my maternal side, was also a singer, and I recently found a book. I'll have to show it to you. It was written in the '30s. Um, or the late 20s, and it there's a reference to it. It's called, I think it's called the Caballeros of Santa Fe or something. And there's a there's a, a paragraph written on that this the author runs into this this uh, rug weaver in downtown Santa Fe. Okay, and he was singing, and she asked him what he was singing about, and he talks about how he had just won this nationwide. Uh, singing contest and it's my grandfather my grandfather who wow. was a, who was from Mexico um, had this like an enormous voice and he would you know <laughs> what an amazing story yeah yeah I'll have to show you the book definitely yeah that's so cool yeah so okay so if we fast forward a bit uh, you joined the band with your your dad Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. And uh, at that point, what was the name of the band? Well, what happened is that this was, I was in my early teens, and um, we didn't have a band. Uh, I was doing my own thing. My brother Gilbert was doing his own thing. We'd get together once in a while to do something. But, you know, we were, it was the uh, early 60s, and we were, you know, whatever. But <laughs> you were doing what people yeah, did what, in the what, 60s. Whatever we did in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we were hanging out, and uh, but um, so one of our cousins, who, who was a, uh, 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 he retired from the military. His name was Agustin Chavez, and he was an amazing guitar player. And he was a, uh, uh, he came back to New Mexico after retiring from the service, living in Germany and all different places. And he got back to New Mexico, and he immediately looked up my father because he wanted to continue playing and wanted to do something. And I remember, because I was at my dad's house, I was living on the couch at my dad's place, and uh, Agustin came over, and he's trying to talk my dad and and me into like being in a band. Okay. And I was like... Uh, you know, I'm not going to get in a band with these, you know, <laughs> these old guys. You know what I mean? I had actually started playing earlier in a band, in a R&B band called The Empty Space. Okay. With Louis Dunaway, who you've met, right? Louis Dunaway, yeah, yes. Neighborhood guys that I grew up with. And, and so we were playing, you know, Mustang Sally. And anyway, so he tried to convince my dad, and, and I wasn't going for it. But he talked my dad into it, and my dad talked to my brother Gilbert into it. And so I went along with it. Okay. And um, that was actually the beginning of the band. So, and Agustin's son, Agustin Jr., was also in the band. He was the drummer at the time. My brother Gilbert played guitar, and I played bass, I think. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so that's how it started. And then, and then, you know, it evolved because pretty soon we realized that Agustin Jr. wasn't a really good drummer. Okay. So Gilbert got on the drums, and Agustin picked up a saxophone. And then we brought Lenny along, and Lenny played trumpet because he'd played in school. 
he was, you know, he was 13. Your Lenny. brother Lenny. Yeah, Lenny was 13 or so. Wow. So we'd be playing in the bars on the weekends. Okay. In New Mexico, you, you could be in a in a bar if you were with your parents or with an, mm-hmm. an adult, right? So uh, that's how it, that's really how it started. Uh, all the way until we started, I mean, you know, then we heard James Brown, then we heard Tower Power, and we are the younger guys in the band, Lenny and myself and Gilbert and Augustine Jr. We started musically veering away from where his father and my father were, where they were their comfort zone. So and that was the beginning. At what point and what was the reason you guys said we need to go to Vegas? <laughs> yeah. So how did that happen? Yeah. So so um, the band evolved, right? And so now we were playing an adv- an advanced version of the local. Spanish music, which was really coming out of Texas. It's called Tex-Mex music, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, that music had evolved because a lot of the guys who, the the young Texan musicians who had gone to Berkeley and Juilliard and stuff, they were coming back home and they were joining these bands that were playing the basically kind of oompa music, right? But they started putting jazz into it. And we started hearing that stuff and that's what we started playing. So, now we had a band, we're playing in a, we were actually the house band in a strip joint called the Playmore Club in Santa Fe, <laughs> New Mexico. It was a very colorful past here, Jamie, we're digging into. Yeah. And so the this girls the would, good stuff. The girls would strip and then we'd come on and we'd play and people would dance. <laughs> and uh, so. Which you guys must have just hated that I got, I, you know, it was so bad. I actually lived in the back of that strip club <laughs> in bunk beds. That's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, with some of the strippers mm-hmm. at times, because they were touring. They'd come through as a whole circuit, you know. <laughs> but uh, I was 18 at the time. And um, so one of our friends who lived here in Las Vegas hooked us up with a gig here in Las Vegas at a bowling alley that was just a one-nighter. We were going to play opening act for Los Dinos. Now, Los Dinos was a band, the father of Selena, you know, the piano yeah. artist that Right? Yes. She passed away. She got killed and all yes. that. Well, her father had the band Los Dinos. Okay. They were popular, and we were going to be the opening act for them at this bowling alley here. Here in, in Las Vegas. Here in Las Vegas. So we came out just to do that one thing. And while we were there, while we were here, our buddy that lived here, his name was uh, Coy Herrera, he got us another gig the following night at another bar, a Spanish bar. Okay. Where, I think it was called a power company. Man, things are coming to me. To me. <laughs> and so we played this gig, and at the end of the gig, this guy came up to us and he said, listen, I've got a bar in North Las Vegas called the Scarlet Wagon, and how would you guys like to be the house band? You'd work like three or four nights a week. And um, so... Wow. Yeah, so we, you know, my dad and, I mean, all the guys, We some of us were, you know, everybody, we went back home, quit our jobs, quit school, whatever we were doing, loaded up this old school bus that we had, and came to Vegas. Which must have, you guys must have been ecstatic, right? We were ecstatic. This is amazing. We we were ecstatic. To to look back on it now, if I could reproduce those moments, uh, people would go, man, those are hardships. You guys plunged yourself into hell. 
because it was it was not a very classy place. Mm-hmm. We lived in a motel across the street that had no air conditioning. There weren't even bathrooms inside the rooms. It was a public bathroom down the hall. Wow. Yeah, like that. And so, but for us, it was thrilling. It was exciting. We were all together. We were playing music. Right. It was an adventure. I mean, talk about an adventure. Wow. And so then we would, we would when we weren't working, we would sneak onto the strip, I would call it, because we weren't even old enough to get into the places. Right. And um, we'd sneak onto the strip, man, and we'd see bands like, uh, I'd see B.B. King with a full band in a lounge. I'd see uh, Wayne Cochran and the C.C. Riders, and we'd see uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders, and we'd see all these different groups. We'd see huge comics, you know, in the lounges. Right. And uh, in, in those days, we would actually bribe the Mater D's to let us in. <laughs> sure. You know? I mean, they knew we weren't old enough, mm-hmm. and but generally... You know, if we if we could slide them a little dough mm-hmm. that we would all pitch in together, they'd give us a table way in the back and tell us not to make any noise, you know? Wow. Yeah. It's probably harder to do that these days, isn't it? It's Everything's changed completely, man. Right? It's all changed. It's so different. It's changed so much. Um, you worked in the lounges here in Vegas. I did. And uh, when did you stop working in the lounges? Well, it was probably about, about the same time that 20 we met? years ago, about 2001. And you started in, like, when was the first time you came to Vegas? Well, the first time we came through Vegas was probably 92. Okay. So even by 92, it had completely eroded. Right. Okay. Very different. Very different. Very different. I was thinking about this a couple of days ago, about how we caught the tail end of a really sweet spot in Vegas, the late 70s into the 80s, right? I mean, there was... Back then, there was bands in every lounge, and I mean, killing musicians and right. great bands and just stuff that was, you know, it, it was amazing for live entertainment. See, I, that's what I remember uh, from the first time I would play Atlantic City mm-hmm. in the '80s. Right. It was kind of like that. That's right. Uh, I was, I mean, I was a kid. I was seventeen, mm-hmm. eighteen years old, and I was in awe of the bands that. I was rotating around, right. you know, go on stage, we'd play a set, off stage another band would come on, play another set, and then we'd come back on. And this was like 24 hours a day. Yep. So I would imagine Vegas was that times 20. Oh, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah, and we played Atlantic City, and I... <laughs> 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 yeah, but it was like that. It was like that, you know? But I mean, it was before the DJs, and it was before the yeah. Ultra Lounge, it really wasn't uh, run by corporations so much. Right. Entertainers were respected. Entertainers were respected. There was real entertainment directors that came out of who, you know, knew what they were doing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I got to say that, that back in the day when the, when the mob guys, if that's what you want to call them, were running the place, they, they kind of knew that if, if they gave you a little, you'd give them everything. Hmm. In terms of... Like they would comp gamblers to the, to the shows and to the lounge, you know what I'm saying? And they'd get them. Man, that all stopped when things started becoming corporate. Right. And that's when the people who were in charge of entertainment started saying, you know what? We can get this band for less than that band. 
you could, but you don't understand the difference in quality of what you're getting either. Right. And so what happened is that little by little, they chipped away at the budgets, and by doing so, they chipped away at the quality until it was until it was a joke, mm-hmm. until it was like, who even wants to go out and see that? Yeah. You know? And so that's when we bailed out of the lounges. Well, so let's talk about that because how do you go from uh, – Santa Fe at at that time was a six piece, yeah. right? Playing in the lounges. How do you go from there to you being uh, working with uh, Tom Scott, right? And then Ricky Martin, right? And, and that how, how does right. that progression happen right. for right. you? Right. Okay. So here was the thing. I would I would go during the eighties and the nineties on my days off. I would drive to Los Angeles, and I would go and I would sit at the feet of musicians that that were to me before were names on album covers mm. and i would get baptized by this amazing music and musicians because working in vegas it's like a bubble and you could start thinking that you know you were pretty hot you know what i mean uh-huh. and we we were kind of like big fish in a small pond at a certain point in las vegas as far as bands and musicians not that we weren't virtuosos but as a unit yeah as a team yeah we were pretty strong yeah so i would go to los angeles and i and i you know i meet a lot of people and make a lot of friends also back in those days since we were like the hot band that everybody would come see all the musicians that came through Las Vegas would come see Santa Fe. Right. So whether they were working with Diana Ross or Paul Anka or Frank Sinatra, whoever, the Al- I mean, since way back in Elvis, Elvis's band used to come see us. So, Well, I can tell you the first time that I ever came to Vegas mm-hmm. and I asked somebody, who should I go see? Santa Fe. Yeah. That's so, what I was told. So because of that, we I met a whole lot of people. And then... Where, where things really turned around for me was um, I had always been a huge fan of Bill Champlin, who had a band called the Sons of Champlin, and then he went with Chicago, and but he had done a ton of stuff with a, a, you know a group called Airplay, and I mean there was I was just a huge fan. He'd done recordings with Lee Rittenour. Right. I would follow this guy's career, and I was a huge fan. So when he got with Chicago, and I would try to meet the guy. Like, um, I, I remember, and I, I've told you the story, I disguised myself as like an FTD florist, and I showed up at the Aladdin Theater for the Performing Arts with a fruit basket at the back door. <laughs> and I was like, uh, yeah, FTD, I brought a gift basket for Mr. Champlin. This They're is like, a true story. This is a true story. They're like, well, we'll leave it here and we'll give it to him. I was like, no, we, I can't do that. <laughs> I'm going to have to deliver it personally to Mr. Champlin. <laughs> they never let me get near them. And oh, they didn't? No, 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 they never did. But my friend uh, Jim Moran, who now works with Santa Fe and the Fat City Horses, yeah. one of our audio engineers, yeah. his brother Hugh Moran at the time was playing drums with us. Now, Hugh had played with Minnie Ripperton, had played with uh, George Benson, he played with a lot of people. And Jim had been around the music business forever as a tech he had, he'd, he'd, he's still involved with music in the music business. And Jim called me and he said, Jerry, I got the gig as Tris Imboden's drum tech with Chicago. I said, man, that's great. He goes, and I know how big of a fan you are of Bills. So listen, we're going to be in Reno. No, we're going to be in Lake Tahoe. 
He said, so why don't you come up here? You can stay in my room with me, and, and, and I'll introduce you to Bill. I was like, you know, at the time, wow. at the time we were broke, I had um, two little kids or three little kids <clears throat> at the time. I didn't have a lot of money, and I told my wife, I said, uh, look, I want to take the money that we've got. I'm going to buy a plane ticket to Reno. I'm going to rent a car and drive up to Lake Tahoe. She was wow. like, why? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I got to go. I got to go meet this guy. I got to I just, you know. So that's what I did. Wow. And so um, after I went and I saw the show one night, at the end of the show, I brought up one of my Bill Champlin, his solo albums for him to sign. And at the end of the gig, I came backstage. I met all the guys in Chicago and and um, met Bill. I asked him to sign the album, and we're just talking for a minute. I'm like a, like a teenage girl, you know. <laughs> and he goes, hey, man, you hungry? Let's go eat. And I was like, yeah. So we went. We wow. spent We spent the whole night talking, you know, and it was funny because I, I told him, uh, did you ever have anybody that you admired or looked up to like that? He said, yeah. He said, uh, Lou Rawls. He said, and one night he goes, I finally met Lou Rawls. He said, and, and we got together. We were playing in the same place. And he goes, we went up to our one of our hotel rooms and we emptied out the, 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 the bar. <laughs> the mini bar. He goes, I couldn't believe I was hanging out with Lou Rawls. Wow. He goes, so I had him call Tamara, my wife. He said, I, he goes, I got to call Tam. She's not going to believe this. And I got him on the phone. He said, you'll never find. And she's like, Bill, get out of here. He's like, no, this is Lou Rawls. And so I said, Bill, man, could we do that? Could we? <laughs> right. So we stopped at a payphone. Those payphones back then. Yep. And, and called Sari, and she was like, oh, my God. You know, so. Wow. But, uh, so we became friends. Wow. And so the next week, they were playing in Vegas. Oh. And I hung out in Vegas with them. And so the last night that they were here... Jim Moran could have waited till they came to Vegas to tell you that. Could have, could have, but it, but it worked out perfectly because <laughs> right. we were so isolated in right. Lake Tahoe. It wasn't like there was a bunch of stuff they could do, right. so we'd hang in out. In Vegas, you might not I have I went that. to the show every night. We hung out every night. Wow. And then when they came to Vegas, we did the same thing, and I met his wife, Tam, and his son, Willie, who was a little boy at the time. And um, on the last night that they were here... Because he had played me some of his demos. He had this old beat-up ghetto blaster in his suitcase, little tiny thing. And he would just play these cassettes for me of demos of songs that he was writing wow. and recording. And so on the last night, I brought him like a brand new one. And I thought, you know, he can afford, of course, to buy anything he wants. But I brought him this cool little ghetto blaster. And in it was a cassette tape of Santa Fe. Got it. Got it? That was a nice little... That was a thing. So I gave it to him. It was great, great knowing you. They took off. I didn't hear anything from him for, I don't know, three months, you know. Okay. Then one morning, Sari wakes me up. She goes, it's Bill Champlin on the phone. So I get up. He goes, hey, man, who the hell is singing on that cassette that you left in the... He goes, I'll be honest with you. He said, I got the thing, and I actually just threw the cassette in, in, in my car in the the side pocket door I never even listened to it he goes and I was going somewhere and I my hand got in there and I found this cassette I threw it in the car he goes who the hell is that I said well that's me and <laughs> he goes no shit who's playing guitar on that I said well that's me he said huh he said what are you doing this weekend wow the next thing I know I'm in Los Angeles at his amazing recording studio playing on a record with Jeff Percaro and Abe Laboreal, and wow. 
And Tom Scott comes over to return a microphone he'd borrowed from Bill. And so suddenly all these doors were kicked open for me. Wow. So that's... That's what led to all these things. That's what led to all of these things. And then by that time, like I said, I'd known all these other musicians and all these people. But when I got the stamp from Bill Champlin, I'm telling you, it kicked doors open with Jay Graydon, who's a monster producer, who produced all the great El Jero records That's and right. Barge, and David Foster, and all of these people, when they knew that, that I'd worked with Bill or was a friend of his, I was immediately like led into this, you know, triple A uh, wow. club of musicians in Los Angeles. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. It's a pretty amazing story of how that all comes together. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you look back on it, um, does it almost feel like this was kind of destined to happen? Oh, yeah. In a certain way? Yeah, I think, I think destiny, there is such a thing as things that are destined to happen. I think that we can control our destiny by the direction that we move our feet in, right? So, so, you know, we can, we, I think there's destiny, but I also think there's a, a, an element of, of us propelling ourselves towards that thing. Like, right. like my persistence in, in, in chasing. In meeting Bill. In meeting Bill. And I tell young people, I tell them, if there's somebody that you admire, that you really go, this could be a mentor for me. If you, if you can... And you can find a way to meet yeah. this person and show them that your intent is honest, it's true, it's passionate. I don't know any of them that would not actually be willing to give you everything that they have. Because that's what Bill did for you. That's what Bill did for me. You know, once he realized... Absolutely. You know, he, I'm sure he was honored that you were such a big fan of his, but when he saw your talent... Yes. Right? He that's was right. like, come here. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, I mean, <laughs> you, you've worked with Bill. We've been on tours together yeah. with Bill. And, um, yeah. I mean, there's so much to learn from those guys. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so he dragged Tom Scott into the lounge to see us one night. Wow. Okay, they were actually in the desert here filming a, a video with Brenda Russell on a, for a song that Bill and, and Brenda wrote and sang on one of Tom's things. Okay. And Tom was like, man, we're going to go to a Vegas lounge. Come on. So he brought it to see Santa Fe. Not three weeks later, I get a call from Tom Scott. He's like, I'm putting a new band together. There you go. And I'd like you to be the guitar player and singer. I was like, what? The guitar players in Tom Scott's band had been Robin Ford and Larry Carlton and Eric Gale. And, I mean, just my heroes. I was like, I was frightened. I was excited. Right. You know. Right. So, but that was that was Bill kicking that door open once again. Um, one of your quotes uh, that I took off your website is about you as a band leader and musical director, and you say, "I lead from the front and always treat the people I work with with respect." The first step is always hiring the very best musicians and people that I can. And this eliminates a lot of the problems that others encounter when trying to do the job that I do as a musical director. Tell me about that philosophy. Yeah, well, I think that's kind of self-explanatory in that I think in any business, in any endeavor, 80% is in the casting you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's it's who you surround yourself with. 
my my grandmother, because <laughs> like I told you, I grew up in a rough neighborhood, and <laughs> I could things could have gone either way for me. You okay. Know? Uh, but my grandmother used to tell me in Spanish. In Spanish, it's "Dime con quién andas y te diré quién eres," which means you tell me who you hang with, and I'll tell you who you are. And so, so from from an early age, I realized that um, that if I was going to to become something, I was going to need to be around the people that, that were like what I wanted to become. And then as a band leader, and I learned the hard way, I didn't, I didn't always make the right decisions. I made a lot of mistakes. But what I realized was that um, the, the, the people that I surrounded myself with were going to be the, the ingredients, the elements that were going to go into the whatever stew it was I was cooking. And so those elements had to be of really high quality. And the other thing I realized was that just getting amazing musicians together does not make great music. Mm-hmm. It does not. There's there can be a lot of discord and dissonance, and and a lot of times, really great artists have an edge to them. Mm. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. we, we know a lot of people like that, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I respect them, and we can be friends forever. But I know if we work together, and it's it's happened like that. With it's me a strange, before. intangible thing sometimes about chemistry. Chemistry between people. That's right. right. So, so yeah. I think, I think personality-wise, if you can be a good judge of character, at least get in the ballpark, and you find people who are soulful and feel the same way that you do about things, and uh, you know that was the beautiful thing about the Storm Band, right? Because I come off the Ricky Martin tour, which, by the way, my other little brother Cleto Escobedo actually inadvertently sideways helped me get that gig. Ah, so Cleto is the musical director for the Jimmy Kimmel Band and uh, born and raised in Las Vegas. Yeah. You've basically known him your whole life. That's is that right. correct? That's right. That's right. And, and and was in Santa Fe. He was part of Santa Fe. And when he left Santa Fe, he went with Paula Abdul when she was hot and went on her tour. He worked with Philip Bailey. He worked, And then he worked with Mark Anthony and he, so he was in this certain strata of, of, of guys, and he was hanging out with uh, Ricky Martin's tour manager, mm. and who mentioned, man, you know, we got to find a, a guitar player because our okay. guy left. And he, and Cleto went, I know the guy. Wow. So they called me and they said, there's a bunch of guys auditioning, New York, Miami, LA, bunch of guys coming. They told me some of the names, you know, and I was like, oh, man, I'll never get this gig, you know. Peter Gabriel's guys, you know, all these different. But uh, once again, what I did, I don't know if, do you remember what I, were you uh, around it? Uh, vaguely. Okay. Tell me. Tell what me. I did is, is I immediately created like a demo reel. This was on VHS. VHS, right. Right. Immediately. And I had it overnighted, which in those days, it cost me $400 to get that VHS tape the very next morning wow. to the musical director's house. Wow. Okay. And this is um, footage of you with Santa Fe, mainly? Footage of me with Santa Fe, mainly. Okay. Some Tom Scott stuff, some okay. Bill Champlin things, okay. all of that. So, 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 he, so there was a, you know, they knew that I was playing with real guys, and they saw that I could play and sing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they, I talked to the musical director. He called me right away, and... He said, well, we've got some really strong guys auditioning, but if you want to come to Miami, he goes, we're going to do it like 
in, in a few days, uh, come to Miami. So I showed up in Miami, and uh, I never even took my guitar out of my gig bag. Really? Never even took the guitar out. It was like they wanted they wanted a singer who could sing the highest parts and the background parts, which at the time was consistently singing B flats. Okay. So which, by your because of your your VHS tape because of your right. reel he knew you could play that's right because of because of watching Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns watching Tom Scott Bill Champlin they were going there's nothing the guy can't okay handle guitar wise they, they needed to make sure you could hit this note they wanted to make sure that I could sing these background parts wow so but that was through Cleto right wow that's amazing yeah it is isn't it so. That's um, how that happened. But anyway, so as far as, far as that whole thing about <clears throat> the, surrounding yourself with, with great musicians, it's proven itself. Yeah. That is, I mean, Jamie, look, we've got Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns is, for the most part, the exact same guys that we've had for 20 years. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, and I've rarely ever had to let somebody go. Right. People just evolve out of the band or in the band. Right. You know? And, you know... There are legendary stories of the Santa Fe bands from the '70s being fired multiple times, and that's but that's a whole other. <laughs> I fired the entire band at one point. <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other conversation. And like I said, I made mistakes. Okay, and, and we all make mistakes, you know. And and I've learned from all of those. But yeah. so, I want to shift gears for a second and ask you a question about creativity. And I, I try to ask, uh, you know, anybody that, that I interview that's, a, that's an artist or a musician or a singer, where, in your opinion, does creativity come from? In other words, where do you get that, that thing, whatever it is, where does it come from and how does it translate to your pen or your instrument or your voice, or whatever. Mm -hmm. How does that work for you? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I call it the muses, you know? I call on the muses to visit me when I need to be creative. You and I know, and I tell people this all the time, I said, Jamie and I have a business where we write infomercials for television. We've been doing it for quite a few years now, and there are times when we have to come up on that day with 10 minutes of music. And anybody, any musician, writer, composer out there that knows what that means, try writing a three-minute song. Try writing it, mixing it, mastering it, and delivering it. Right. And so there are times when I would wake up and I have not an idea in my mind of what was going to happen. And I know I have to plant myself in that chair. And I guess it's like authors and writers say, right? The hardest part about writing is sitting down so 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 here's the thing here's what i believe i believe that that you have to have an open mind i believe that you have to be open to all kinds of things and you have to start the process many times uh the process for me in uh for example in writing a song is just actually grabbing the guitar and start noodling is me starting to just hum an idea, and I'll throw away 50 ideas before one sticks. So cr for me, creativity is work. For me, creativity is sweat. 
for me, creativity is elbow grease. I'm not, I mean, there have been, you know, rare moments when, uh, where like, like a lot of people will tell you, man, I woke up in the middle of the night and I had this idea. That's happened to me, but rarely, rarely, you know. A lot of times I'll be driving in the car and I'll hear something and it'll trigger another idea and I'll hum that into my phone. I probably have 50 of those little ideas, I call them kernels, in my cell phone that I can go to when it's time to like actually write a song. In fact, this... Um, this thing that we're going to debut Monday on our live stream with Santa Fe, a song called Bad Blue Moon, started out as that. And so I wrote this hook in this chorus, then I sent it to Bill Champlin, hmm. and he and his wife Tamara embellished on it. So mm -hmm. creativity, I think, I think you have to be open, you have to be brave. You have to be brave. Yeah. A lot of people, they're like, man, oh, I can't write because I don't, you know, and I don't, and I mean, there's people in my, in my life that are like that who are like, no, I, I can't write. They've already said they can't write, so they don't write. How many times have we done that where we finish a song that, that ended up being a good song, mm -hmm. and then you go, geez, am I ever going to be able to write a oh. good song again? And you know what I found out is that everybody has that. Everybody. Everybody. Yeah. Some of my heroes so it's very... have that insecurity of like, you know, here's, here's the thing that's common, and, and I didn't think it was. But it's a common thing of, like, there have been times when I've sat around thinking, they're going to figure out that I'm a fraud. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. They're, oh, they're going to figure out that, that this has all been smoke and mirrors. And the, and the reality, Jamie, is that it's not smoke and mirrors, man. If you look at, if you look at your, your, your history and you look at the things that you've created, we are not as good as the worst thing we've ever done. We're as good as the best thing we've ever done. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm, we're as good as the best thing we've ever done. Mm -hmm. And so many times, as humble as we want to be, as humble as, as life has made us, because humility comes with, with ups and downs and, and realizing that it, you can be up this moment. I remember playing the Grammys one night and then playing for 50 bucks at the E string. Okay, but because we gain a certain amount of humility, we still have to remember that a lot of times you have to remind yourself of the power that you do have. Mm. And that's why, you know, uh, th there have been play in like in my studio where I've had to surround myself with certain things, okay, that give me power. They're like uh, talismans, right? I want the muses to visit me, but mm -hmm. I'm going to re remind myself that there are things that I have accomplished that I can do. Because if I go into an endeavor thinking, ah, I'm never going to, and I can't, and I don't know if I should, you immediately have given in, you've given power to the weakness. So it's kind of like that famous Henry Ford quote, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. You're right. Whether you, whether you think you That's can or right. can't, so, you're right. So you know what? Many times, act as if. Act as if. You know what That's I'm beautiful. saying? It's beautiful. It's yeah. um, beautiful. All right. So... I want to ask you one more question. We could talk so about so many more things. We haven't even really touched on Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns, mm -hmm. but um, I'll make sure there's there's web links and yeah, uh, do. Yep. everybody make sure you check out SantaFeBand.com, JerryLopez.com for all of his music and CDs and and the band's music. Um, what advice would you give to the younger generation 
in this day and age that want to either learn an instrument or want to sing or be in the in the music industry in whatever faculty right that means because right. that could mean being a working musician it could mm-hmm. mean being a a singer could mean being a recording artist but it's it's a different age that we live in now yeah yeah it, it is so different it is so different that the advice i would have given 5 years ago or 10 years ago is not the same advice i'll give today right so there was a time and i was thinking about this yesterday there was a time when when we actually thought man there's not going to be any great musicians anymore man there's just it's going it's all going down the tubes man we're not going to see more chickarias we're not going to see any more uh, charlie parkers that's bull right and it wasn't that long ago <laughs> it wasn't that, that we were long saying ago. that i i mean all you got to do is go on facebook and you see little kids who who are just absolutely amazing now these people all have tools that we didn't have when we were growing up mm-hmm. i can go online right now and learn how to play a sitar okay i can go online right now and learn how to play flamenco guitar or I can learn how to play a tuba, repair a tuba, and fix my water heater. That's right. While right, so while your sitar comes to you to the door, my sitar comes to Amazon. me at the door from Amazon. <laughs> so it's a very different world. Yeah, they everything is accelerated. Yeah, everything is accelerated. It's an instant world we're in right now. So I still think that the element of elbow grease will always be something that's that's needed. I don't care. I mean, we see geniuses in some of these kids, I think. But Correct. for most people, if you have talent, trust me, talent is not the criteria for success in our business. Talent is one small element of it. There are many, many things. Luck plays a big part of it. But you can create your own luck by by using elbow grease, by pointing your your energy and yourself in a specific focused direction of what you want. Now, because our day and age has changed, we've talked about this many times. Right now, you and I are in the video business. Even though this is a, a podcast where it's just audio, I did a uh, a video podcast two days ago with Eddie Flewellen, mm-hmm. and I did a video thing for Jeff Nyman's new song, and I just got through doing uh, promo video stuff for a track I wrote and you sang on with Tommy Malm, mm-hmm. uh, the Finnish producer. So video is part of everything that we do. And you and I recently had a conversation with a social media marketing expert because that really is the future. We are no longer hiring an agent to get a manager so we can get a record deal. Those days are over. That's history. So... As a young musician, there are going to be things you're going to have to learn that have nothing to do with playing notes on an instrument or singing them. You can do that, and you can become a master at it, and that's great. But if you want to be a well-rounded, well-educated musician, you're going to have to learn all kinds of stuff, social media and marketing, and you're going to have to, you know, there are all these other things that you know that, and they've probably already got a head start in it anyway. Well, yeah, and and, and I suppose on the positive side, um, they have the tools at their disposal. We didn't have those. That's right. Things when we were kids and coming up, there That's was no right. such thing as social media. I, I couldn't, I couldn't make a video of myself and put it out for the world to see. That's right. Um, 
so there's that, but you're right. I think that being great at anything still takes work. Oh, yeah. And being, there's no substitute for there's that. There's no substitute for that. Bear down. I mean, and, and, and that comes with passion. If you think about any of the people that are great at what they do, it's because they love doing it. I don't care if you're talking about Tiger Woods or Muhammad Ali or you're talking about George Benson or, or Bruno Mars. Or, these are people who are passionate about what they do. And I found that out. I found that out when I did move out of the lounge scene where many of us were working five, six nights a week, four to six sets a night, where it becomes a drudgery, man. I mean, we were making a good living, but the fire had almost completely gone out. Yep. So I'd go to L.A. and I'd see these guys who were like little kids about their music. They could hardly wait to play, and there was a joy in it. And I was like, that's what I have to rekindle. And that was how Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns was born. So let's end with you talking about quickly about Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns, um, what the band is up to right now. We're still, as we record this, we're still in the COVID era. So the band is still um, not playing to live audiences. But what's the next best thing? Yeah, well, we're doing uh, live stream shows directly from the nightclub where we play when there is audiences at the Copa, at the bootlegger. And we've enlisted the help of some amazingly talented people in audio and video so that we're putting together what we believe is a high-quality performance. And you know, Jamie, it took us months, and I almost called it quits. I almost pulled a plug on the whole thing because it wasn't up to the standards that we knew it had to be at. I just didn't want... I would rather not do anything right. than do something that's not up to the, our standards. Right. And so we've put together what I think is a, a really good combination of people and thank God that our friends at the Bootlegger and the Copa, uh, Ron Mancuso and Lorraine Hunt Bono, have been so generous with us to let us just take over the nightclub yep. to do what we're doing. Yep. And uh, so we get to play. We get to. We, we've been practicing. I told somebody yesterday, man, I was I was afraid with after our first rehearsal. I was like, oh my God, you you forget how you know you can atrophy. Absolutely. You know in. So and quickly any, and quickly, <laughs> so it's been a, it's been really good for us um, musically, and the, I think the band is even getting tighter yeah. than it ever has yeah. because of the conditions we're playing in. So that's what we're doing. We've got a guest artist this coming Monday, uh, Derek Frank, who's played with everybody from uh, Shania Twain and Gwen Stefani to Dancing with the Stars. Yeah. Uh, just a wonderful musician. He's got a new record, and we're going to help him promote it. Yeah. So we're going to be doing guest artists and uh, awesome. doing what Santa Fe does. We heal. You know, yep. and this is a time when everybody needs a little healing. Absolutely. Jerry, thanks so much for being on with us. Thanks for having me, Jamie. You have been listening to the Chic Compass Connection podcast. To learn more about Chic Compass magazine, visit chiccompass.com. That's C-H-I-C-C-O-M-P-A-S-S.com. Thanks again to The Vegas Room for hosting us. Visit thevegasroom.com to find out more about this great supper club. This is Jamie Hosmer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>